I love that faith story. Amen. I love seeing people, I love seeing any step of faith and growth. I love new steps. I love it when people are down and out and they take that step. And I really love the long haul faithfulness. And I want to thank, <laughs> thank so many of you in this room right now who have been following Jesus and loving our church for a long time. I just want to say thank you. And thank you again, Joyce and Teddy, for, uh, for sharing that story. Question today, before we dive in to Moses and we look at this, this ancient experience of Passover, my question for you this morning is, what are the rhythms of your life? What are the rhythms of your life? What are the habits? What are the practices? What are the patterns that give your, the chaos of your life, the noise of your life, meaning and structure? What are those rhythms? And which of those rhythms put you at the center? And which of those rhythms put Jesus at the center? That's the question I want you to consider as we dive into God's word this morning. What are your rhythms? What are your practices? What are your habits? And who are they putting in the center? We're in week two of our series. Rescue is coming. We're looking forward to Easter. We're looking forward to the ultimate rescue that we find in Jesus. I want to catch you up a little bit if, uh, if you weren't here last week um, or if your background in the Bible is limited. And let me say a couple things about that. Whenever we get into the Old Testament, whenever we mention like a big name, Moses is a big name in the Bible. Some of you instantly, you have this explosion of background knowledge. Some of you went to camp back in the day and you sang, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, <laughs> let my people go. I won't do the, the motions. Some of, how many of you remember that? You, you, you sang that, you got that experience. How many of you think that's really weird? <laughs> this is a strange group of people. Okay, wherever you come from, whatever your background, whether you've got all the stories and it there's just an explosion of connections that come up. Or when you look back and your background knowledge is a blank page. I'm so glad you're here. I want to do my best to fill in a little bit so that you're not lost. And some of you may say, well, I need a little bit more. Some of you are like, I already know the story. But wherever you are, I'm going to catch up just a little bit and then we're going to dive in uh, to the Word and see what it can teach us this morning. Last week we talked about how in Exodus 3, God had this calling and preparation for Moses. When he was at his point where he was most useless, 80 years old, thought he was washed up, he became useful for God. And his preparation was in his presence with God. It's in his encounter with God at the burning bush where God reveals his name, that he is the great I am, 
I am who I am. The Hebrew for that is Yahweh. That's where we get the name Yahweh. And we saw how that points ultimately to Jesus, the great I am. And we've been following this pattern of looking at these Old Testament narratives that ultimately point us to Jesus. Well, the story has continued, and Moses has reluctantly embraced his calling to be used by God to rescue his people from slavery. One of the interesting observations, even when God calls us to do something, our personality doesn't naturally go away. Moses was kind of reluctant. He had been through some some difficult times in his his 80 years. He spent 40 years in uh, Pharaoh's palace, 40 years in the desert as a shepherd, and had some confidence issues. God's going to equip him. God's going to give him his brother Aaron, who will be the spokesperson for this. So we see prior to this, this epic battle between Moses and Pharaoh Yahweh and Pharaoh's gods, where the call is to let my people go. But as Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and ask for things, Pharaoh, instead of relenting, will make things more difficult upon the Hebrew people. The quotas that are required will become more difficult in their slavery. And as a response... God will bring plagues on the Egyptians. There's a series of plagues. There's there's 10 plagues in total. We've had nine so far. They get progressively worse. And we're finally to this point of the ultimate plague, the plague of the firstborn. So we're in this process of God asserting himself, of God rescuing his people out of Egypt. So I want to take you to Exodus 12, and we'll dig in. I wrestled with how much of this to actually read. I'm going to read a lot of it to you. Not the whole thing, but I want to start in Exodus 12, verse 1. I'm in the NIV. You can follow along on the screen or turn to or turn on your device. Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small, For a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight." Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. 
Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then verse 17. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast. From the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day, for seven days no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. I pray that my words are true and clear and helpful and bring you glory and honor. Burn off whatever doesn't do those things. Holy Spirit, help us see, be our teacher this morning. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's make some observations about this great rescue story. If you haven't read anything in this particular part of the Bible for a while, it probably strikes you as a bit odd, a bit exacting. Reading this with some different groups of people this week, and somebody said, There's one thing I'm really glad of. I, would, I didn't live during this time. I'm so thankful to be alive right now. But what can we learn from this particular rescue story? I believe, first of all, that the rescue story reveals the character of God. The rescue story itself 
And please understand, when I say story, I don't mean it's made up. It's true, capital T. But it is a narrative, and we, we read a narrative, we pay attention to characters, we pay attention to repetition, and we say, God, what are you teaching us through this story? Well, we, we discover some things about the character of God. God is a rescuer. He has heard the cries of his people who are enslaved. They have become commodities. They are what they produce. That's it. They have suffered mightily. There's a prophecy back in in Genesis 15 where God will say to Abraham, your people will be enslaved. I'm going to make you a great nation, but you're going to be in 400 years of slavery. Well, the time has come. The time has come to be rescued. But God is a God of compassion, a God of love who is rescuing his people. But there's this epic battle with Pharaoh. In his vision for rescuing his people, his firstborn. And I want to take you real quick to Exodus 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you, the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. What do we understand about the character of God? Many times when we look at the Old Testament and we see God is a God of love and God is a God of justice. And sometimes we see these different characteristics of God and we wrestle and we say, how could God do this? How could the God of justice and power also be the God of love and compassion? How do we wrestle with this tension in the scriptures? And one observation I would make is that what's an internal conflict for me and my little brain is not in the mind of God. God in his omniscience, God in his foreknowledge, God can see all things and God can act. In the scripture, we see that Pharaoh hardens his heart. We see that Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and we see that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which one is true? All of them. All of them. Somehow, in a way, we can't fully understand. God works through decisions. One of the earlier plagues, the the plague of the hail, God works through those same natural processes. I'm not a meteorologist. I can't explain all the steps of that. But whatever brings about hail, God is the ultimate cause of that, but he still works through those natural processes. God still works through decisions that people make. God is sovereign. God is omniscient, he knows all, he sees all, he's, he's all-powerful, 
and he works through people. He works through decisions. Only God sees the decisive, freedom-destroying decisions too. I love the way Alec Moitier puts it. He says, with these words, we are forcefully reminded that choices are the privilege and price of being human. Our privilege is that of being responsible beings, recognizing moral values, called to make responsible choices, and given the opportunity and obligations to live in the light of the foreseeable consequences of our actions. The price we pay, listen to this, the price we pay is that every choice, for good or ill, goes to fashioning our characters, and whether in the long or short term or both, makes us answerable to the judge of all the earth. God is in charge, and God works through human beings. We're not robots. Now, what can we learn about the character of God as we continue looking at this? Well, let me take you to 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's character. Now, as we look at this Passover story, let's get back into the story for a second and see how it actually points to Jesus. Go to Exodus 12, verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. There is a substitutionary sacrifice that's going on here. There's a substitute. The lamb will die. The Hebrew firstborn will be saved. There's a substitution that's going on here. There is rescue through the blood of the lamb. Now, if we just stop there, we would only get a glimpse. But I want to take you to the New Testament. Take a, take a hard right. We go to the Gospel of John. This is John the Baptist. He says this in John 1.29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Anybody who heard him at that particular time would not have connected all the dots. And this will develop as Paul and Peter put these pieces together. Just as the Israelites are rescued from the bondage of Pharaoh, we through Jesus are rescued from the bondage of sin and death. What a rescue. What a rescue. That's why we can go to a a funeral of a believer and we we can celebrate even as we mourn because we know it's not goodbye. Now, Paul's going to make this connection a little bit more clear. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. 
Your boasting has got good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, some of you, this is clicking. Some of you are like, okay, i got, I got to process this a little bit more. That's okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead you through these. Go back, put those connections together. 1 Peter 1, 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So John the Baptist, Paul, Peter, they're putting these pieces together and we're seeing how they point to Jesus. Now, not only do we have the rescue story itself, but we have a rhythm celebration that will help us remember and reset our priorities and practices. So let's take a look at Exodus 12, verse 24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask, when your children ask, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. So we have the story and we've got the celebration or ceremony. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you grew up in a church where you had lots of ceremonies, lots of rituals, lots of that kind of stuff? Okay. How many of you grew up and you had none of that? It all seems like freelancing. <laughs> people come from different backgrounds. Some people, when they when they experience ceremony and ritual and all that, it's like, yes, order, structure. Some people are like, oh, no. It brings back bad, painful memories. My guess is in this room there is a mix of experiences. But how do we take this ancient ceremony, understand it, and see how it is relevant to us today? You see, this is a foundational story. This is a foundational ceremony that so much of what we do comes out of this. And I believe it's important that we understand it. Because I I think for one thing, we live in a culture right now that is really short on things that point us to the bigger story. So much of what we experience in life is all about you and all about me and wants to put you at the center of the story. Part of what these ceremonies do is they say, you know what? There's a bigger story. There's a bigger story that matters. It's a silly example, but uh, the college I went to, highly steeped in tradition. Don't step on this crest. Don't walk under this. Memorize this. 
And I thought it was all really stupid until I graduated. And then my son ended up going to that college. And part of what it reminds you is, you know what, you're not the, you're not the first one to set foot on campus. You're part of a bigger story. And that's part of what Passover does, part of what these ceremonies do, is they remind us that we are part of a bigger story. Peter will say, I think it is right to refresh our memories. And ultimately for us, we don't don't celebrate Passover anymore. Just Passover. Because what Passover does, Passover points us to Jesus. Let me take you quickly to Luke 11, or Luke 22. When the hour came, this is the Last Supper, Jesus is going to go to the cross. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What Jesus is doing at the Passover meal, now that's like the, the time of Moses here, we're talking 3,500 years ago. When, when Jesus gathers his disciples, this is a 1,500-year-old practice. And he's going to redefine it. And he's going to show how these pieces mean something different now, and they point to him. This year at Good Friday, we're going to actually participate in a version of this, a version of the Passover meal, a version of the, of the Seder meal, where we take particular elements and experience them together and see how they point to Jesus. Why? Because you and I are not at the center of the story. We're part of something bigger. And we can experience that together as as a church family, as individual families all together. I, I can't wait. It's going to be a tremendous experience to help kind of reset things and help us understand how Jesus is at the center of it all. So when we read these passages and we think about our practice of communion, our practice of remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross, I would invite you to consider a couple things. Okay? We're going to go to the table here in a few minutes. Sit tight. We're going to take you through a little bit of a practice of application here. Those of you who are like, you're scratching your head saying, okay, Passover, how does this apply to me today? Which is such a question we always ask, right? Well, I'm going to give you some things to think about. But when we come to the table, what do we do? First of all, 
we see Jesus and we see what he's done for us and we see his rescue. We see what he bore on the cross. And then as we do that, we're also challenged to examine ourselves. The Apostle Paul will tell us that in 1 Corinthians 11, to examine ourselves. Now, let me break this down for us, and I want to give you some reflection questions. I would invite you now, I want you to try to grasp this big concept of the Passover of Jesus being our great Passover lamb, of rescuing us. Now, how does that impact our daily rhythms? First of all, there's a mindset that says this. I believe that my current rhythms shape my character for today, my influence for the kingdom, and my preparation for eternity. Do you believe that to be true? That that your current rhythms, your practices, your habits, they shape you today, they shape what we do for the kingdom, and they shape us for all eternity. Pause and say, do I, do I really believe that to be true? Okay. If, if I don't, well, let's, let's pause. We talk about that. We can have a conversation afterwards. All right. It's great to push back, great to ask questions. I was reminded of this uh, this week in just a weird way. I didn't connect the dots until last night. Uh, on Tuesdays, uh, my wife Kim and I watch uh, Take Care of Our Granddaughters, which is a blessing. 19-month-old is there, little Eleanor. I'm scrambling in between meetings. I go from one meeting, I stop at home and see her, and I got another meeting to get to. I've got my coat on, and she says to me, Pops, coat off. Not a question. This is a command. She comes from a line of strong-willed women. I love it. Pops, coat off. It was a command. It was a reminder to me of my rhythms. I like to be busy. I'm in a hurry. Hard for me to stop and slow down. So when she says, pops, coat off, what is she saying? Be present with me now. Be present. Even at 19 months, she she knows when my coat's on and I'm running around, I'm not present. I wish I could say that's the only place I wasn't present. Am I really present with Jesus when I pray? Am I really present with others? Those habits, those patterns, play those forward, and they will have impact. So what are your current rhythms? Let me ask you some, let me take you through some action steps. First of all, identify your current rhythms. Now, we think about prayer, we think about Bible study, we think about coming to church, we think about serving, we think about giving, and we think about resting. We think about sleeping, we think about extra. There's a lot of things we can put in this category. But what are your current rhythms? What practices are you following to bring order to the noise 
of your life. What are the non-negotiables on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a seasonal basis? I, I, I don't want to rip on kids in sports. I've, I've, I've done all that. I've been through that. Sometimes we make every game and practice non-negotiable and church and church activity optional. We just do. That's the drift of our culture. Or fill in the blank for other activities. So what, what is... What, what do I need to think about here? What are the rhythms that put me at the center? So much in our culture, whether it's social media, whether it's Netflix, whether it's whatever, it's all designed to meet your preferences, my preferences. It's tailor-made for you. That's, that's culture. That's what we live in. How do we break those rhythms. What do we do? When we're part of community, that's, that's one of the ways we do that. We, we commit to come to church, commit to be in group, commit to come to classes. These things help break that. So what rhythms put me at the center? What rhythms put Jesus at the center? So we want to identify these and then secondly, make some changes. And I'll leave this up and, and give you a moment to reflect before I pray and come to the table. But I need to stop blank. I need to start blank. And if you forget these questions, don't worry, they're on the back of your prayer card today for your spiritual growth enjoyment. I need to limit blank. I need to add blank. What is now optional and should become non-negotiable? What is now non-negotiable and should become optional. I don't know what that is for you. I'm still inviting the Holy Spirit to, to speak to me and identify these things. I, I, I say these not as one who's got it all figured out. But would you invite the Holy Spirit now as we prepare our hearts to go to the table, invite him to do the work that only he can and lead you here. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to you in this moment and we reflect on this great rescue story as we, we try to remember this great celebration that was so particular and meant so much and yet, Jesus, you take it and you redefine it. And that's what we remember now. We remember what you did for us on the cross. And may that reset our hearts and our minds now in this moment. So help us to identify the changes we need to make. But we can only do that when we see you clearly. So help us in that, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.